Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Welcome back, everyone. This is now the first episode of our second season. And over the break, we've been really glad to see our numbers grow even more. So thank you uh, to the listeners who have been telling their friends about the podcast. Thank you to all the new listeners who have just given us a shot. To jump right into this episode, today's moment that Alex has selected is from the world-famous Chacon of the Violin Partita Number no. 2 in D minor. talked on our very first episode about just why we chose to do this podcast. Why Bach? Well, first of all, we have, as we've said before, the permission of a fantastic Bach ensemble, the Netherlands Bach Society, to use their recordings. And as you can hear on this one, we have a fantastic solo violinist who is also the artistic director of the Netherlands Bach Society, Shunsky Seto, and a wonderful performance of this piece. The other reason why Bach is because of enormous complexity of that music, quality and quantity. He wrote so much, and this is a great example. This piece has five movements, and it's just one of the violin partitas, of which there are three. It's BWV 1004. There are over a thousand cataloged works of Bach, and that includes all the movements of each work, some of them having multiple movements. And this is an example of just a huge masterwork of a piece. It's five movements long and we're focusing on the last movement. But this piece could have been complete at four movements. It's one of the really charming things about this. There are four lovely movements based on dance forms of the time. We have an allemand, Courant, then a saraband, the longtime listeners will recognize the term saraband from when we discussed one of the sarabands from a harpsichord suite, And then a jig, or jig. (laughs) 
And that would have just been a complete set right there, but Bach chose to add something else. And not just anything else, but this last movement, the Chaconne, has become the real famous part of this piece. And it's really long. It's almost as long as all the other movements combined. And it fits perfectly into the set as a whole because it draws its main theme out from material the Bach used in all the other movements in their introductions. It starts with this simple theme. But even that is not that simple to play on the violin. So before we get just into what the Chaconne is about and why I find it so fascinating and why I love that one moment, let's talk a little bit about the instrument. I mean, it's just one violin playing this music. It can't be overstated how hard this is. This is a solo violinist. It sounds like a lot of instruments playing together. And Christian, we've talked about horizontal lines before in Bach and how everything has every line has a movement to it. Yeah. Baroque music always has some sort of harmony. And so the big question then is well what about the violin? Can the violin really adequately make harmonic music? Most parts written for the violin are written for just one note at a time. In an orchestra, when all those people are playing on stage they're all playing together, and a lot of their parts are grouped together. Say you have a, say you go to the symphony, you see all these violins and violas and cellos, basses on stage. What's most likely happening is that they're divided into four or five separate parts, so that a whole bunch of them are actually playing together, and they're all just mostly playing one linear part, about one note at a time. And for those of you who know, who understand a little bit more about the violin and how it works, there's four strings. But it's not like a guitar where you can play chords so easily because the strings the strings on a guitar are all on the same plane. On a violin, the strings have an arch to them. It's not really designed to play more than about two notes at a time. It's easiest to just play one, and it's very possible to play two notes at a time on the violin, sustained. Three or four notes on the violin, you can only play broken up or sort of slashed across with one bow all at once. So. To ask a violinist to constantly or consistently play a bunch of three or four note chords in a row, which is what Bach asks of this violinist, it's a lot to ask. It's technically difficult, and to make them sound harmonic and to make all of these lines seem like they have their own direction when there are sometimes three notes, sometimes even four, and a lot of times two really fast ones or one moving fast and then other notes around it. That's a lot to ask, and that makes this an incredible technical achievement for anyone who can play this. But really, it shows the level of complexity and mastery of Bach's compositional skill. Because to compose something like this that actually works is the main feat, I think. Yeah. So just right at the beginning, you have three and sometimes four different tones in each chord, which means 
thinking more horizontally, it means that each of these tones is going to lead to another tone in the next chord. And that's what's called voice leading. We've talked about that in the past. It's a feature of, of all classical music, especially in this era. It really comes down to melody and harmony. Alex, I think, is a good way to describe this, which is that music of this time period, I think, works so well because there's always harmony and there's always melody in some respect. We understand that, like, the kind of basic definitions of this word, melody, is like a single linear line of something somewhat memorable. And then harmony is like chords or background material. But even when there are no chords vertically, there's still an implied way you could harmonize something, like a solo violin partita like this. And then sometimes it's explicitly harmonized by the violinist doing all these notes by themselves anyway. Yeah. That reminds me, I had in, a, in my graduate composition work, I had a great teacher um, named Dr. Martin Herman, and in our composition class, one of our grad classes, he said, write a piece for a solo instrument. That was, that was a pretty open-ended assignment, but it's what we started with in the class. It was the very first thing we did. And a lot of people wrote something for like oboe or flute or something, or violin, right? And like on which we have said you can do some multiple tones, but not too much, right? You have a lot of limitations. Right, on the violin. Not necessarily on the woodwind. On woodwind instruments. instruments, you can't at all unless you're getting into some of the really, really unusual special techniques, which are very particular and not and don't sound classical. There's a modern techniques. So I chose the vibraphone because I was comfortable with percussion already. And I, I kind of like, I, I always feel like I kind of cheated that assignment and I, and I didn't get out of it what the other students did and I felt kind of bad. And the reason was because I used the vibraphone as a chordal instrument. You can play that thing with four, at least four, but usually four mallets so it kind of ends up being like a small piano in a way and we don't have to get into specifics about the vibraphone it's not very uh, germane to our discussion of Bach because it wasn't invented yet it's an interesting instrument but anyway the point is is that I didn't do the assignment right now Dr. Herman didn't like give me a bad grade or anything I mean it, I still did the, the work but I did think to myself like the real challenge here was trying to make a melody basically or something something you're going to make that solo instrument do without using multiple voices, without using a bunch of chords, right? Mm -hmm. And Bach does that all over the place. And even though he does use chords, like we've been saying, and you have to, it's a very technical thing to do on a violin, there's still tons of this music of his solo violin stuff that is just a single line, and you have to imply the harmony, mm -hmm. like you're saying, Christian. And that takes real mastery of composition, as well as really understanding the instrument so well, like and what strings are going to do what notes and how you're going to make those strings resonate while the other one moves or whatever. You know, all these things are very technical with the instrument, but it's really that implied harmony that's so important. Because if you don't have that, the melody could just be anything. You could play any chords under it. It, it would not sound very interesting. Right, and it's actually usually more than just an implied harmony. There's often an implied bottom note. In other words, a bass line. And 
When you think of a violin, you're not thinking of a bass instrument. A violin is a high instrument. It should be playing the melody, the melodic parts. But really, this is a shakun, which is characterized by a repeated bass line. So it's crazy to think that it would be a violin that would have to do this, but it is. There's a repeated bass line in this piece, and that repeated bass line is tied to the chords that are also repeated. They are varied a little bit to make it interesting, but generally there is a very similar bass line pattern that's a certain number of beats long, or measures long, that continues the entire way through. Right, it repeats. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's like when we talked about one of the Pasacalia pieces. Yeah. Back, um, it was way back in episode five. We talked about Pasacalia and C minor. And it really, a Pasacalia and Chacon are for pretty much all our purposes the same thing. We have a bass line that just repeats every four or eight measures. In this case, it's four. And it just go, it goes the whole time and each each new set of four measures is a variation and the way that the interest is kept in the listener is by the variation right is by the the next thing whoa he's going to this crazy jumpy up thing then the next time it's ooh now this time it's this kind of noodly figure that goes down this time and then the way that each of those little ideas gets thrown into the conversation so to speak and the way they each have to go through the same uh, challenge of getting through those four measures, right? Those that set of chords with that bass line. It's it's very satisfying to hear it because once something starts, you know you kind of know where it's going, but you also wonder how it's going to solve the problem. You know? Yeah. You know, uh, thinking about this form of writing music, we talk about uh, on this podcast, Alex. Sometimes the challenge of s- some of you are out there, are creative people trying to write music. The challenge of writing music, writing a song or whatever it may be, um, sometimes we we fall into these patterns of using formats that we know will work with sections that are different. So like write one section, then write a second section of music that's different. Maybe a verse versus a chorus, or A section versus B section. Then go back, do a verse again, then go back A, B, A, B, C, A, or whatever. This is a perfectly legitimate way to structure a musical composition. And it was used hundreds of years ago too, just like it's used today. But what they did back then that we don't really do anymore is this kind of thing. Variation form, which is, can you actually start with something so flexible and do you have the skill to maintain variety with that thing over and over and over and over again and constantly renew it and make it different? And we don't, we don't write music like that very much anymore. That's a great point. I mean, almost everything we hear on a daily basis music-wise is sectional. Has one section, has another section. Maybe a third section near the end, and then a repeated thing that fades away or something. But do you ever hear something that's so varied as it goes along, like a little kaleidoscope constantly shifting, getting more, getting more colorful, less colorful? Yeah. Well, it... Like you said, that the beginning part has to be so flexible. It's kind of like a fugue. No wonder that Bach was a master of fugue as well. Taking some really small piece of music that you create and make, making something so flexible that you could transform it in so many ways, right? And this is another version of that. But I just kind of latched onto what you just said, Christian, about variation. And I think I have a theory about classical music and why some people who 
definitely like popular music, or even not just popular, but anything modern music, and don't really get into classical music and why that is, besides just the fact that they didn't grow up listening to it, part of the thing has to do with music production and the way that music is produced and all the different sounds that we're used to hearing, let's say, in something on the radio, top 40 hit kind of thing. There's a lot more timbral color in something that's on the top 40 hit right now than there is in this, right? Which usually, I mean, in, in, a, in, a, in a romantic orchestra, there's also a lot more timbral color. There's way different colors. This just, in, in many Baroque thing. I'm not saying Baroque music has no timbral color, but that, that was less of a consideration back then in the, in the composing. Mm-hmm. This was about harmony and, yeah. and variation of harmony and melody. Yeah. And so, so, what you could do compositionally within that smaller framework. Yeah, so what what pop music and romantic classical orchestra music and a lot of a lot of things that are just basically from 1800 on or whatever have in common is all the all the variety of orchestral color. And baroque music can sometimes turn people off because it doesn't have a lot of variety of orchestral color. And a piece like this similar to the organ passacaglia but even more drastically has a lack of real tonal interest because you just can't do you can't make those sounds on a violin even the organ can make a lot of different sounds but here's why i love this particular performance of this by shunsuke seto so much he gets so much interesting sound as much as he possibly can out of the baroque violin an instrument that's closer to what they would have really played back then. in fact i think his instrument is a actual baroque violin you know that yeah, was made definitely. back then and and he's playing it in that style and when you hear this piece performed on a modern violin, it is different. Still beautiful, but different and not as authentic. And what he's done here is so interesting. And the moment that I chose um, is kind of a moment that he gets to really shine. But then after uh, a few minutes after that moment, he goes into some very suddenly tender and soft moments and it's just it almost whispers and he gets so much range out of that thing yeah so in that case there in that respect there's a lot of sound variety within the violin but it's still it's so different than what we experience with music today because it has to the piece of music just has to hang together somehow and it's easier to write a piece of music that's three minutes long that'll hang together by itself but 13 14 minutes i mean just imagine a piece of music that just kept on having to have new material all the time new entirely new sections but this one's this solves it another way and this violinist shunsky seto also contributes his own personal touch to that by continually varying the the sound of the violin's texture and timbre as it goes. Yeah, my favorite moment, as I mentioned, was when he's just really going for it and shredding in that moment. There in the, in the score, those notes aren't even all that fast. It's just marked arpeggio, and it's just kind of like you're supposed to do an arpeggio, which, as we said before, is like a broken up chord up and down. Mm-hmm. And different people have interpreted that different ways. And his here is just really energetic, and I love that. 
And then there's a lot of other things I love about this piece, but one thing that I think is my favorite, it has to do with the structure. Christian, as you were talking about structure, what we've said so far is that this is a really short four measure thing, and then it repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats a ton of times. Every time is different. But if you look at the large scale structure of this work, there is something going on also, large scale, or of the Chaconne in particular. And that is that it starts in a minor key and ends in a minor key, but there's a section in the middle that goes into the parallel major, which means we were in D minor and then we go into D major. And that's the moment I talked about before where he suddenly starts playing very tenderly and softly. There's something very beautiful that happens in the cinematography in this particular video also, which we will link like we always do in the episode description. Yeah, right there. You have the, to watch this video. Oh yeah. Listeners, it's so well done. Yeah. Right there, the camera zooms and gets close. And I mean, I'm not a videographer or expert in that, but I think what's happening is there's actually a separate take that was done with like cameras in front, with like a camera person right there and right like sitting right in front of him and like moving around because they're not in the wide shots but it goes it like goes up close to him and it's just really good videography because that's what's happening in the music the music is getting really close and intimate and tender so then the camera goes right up there it's just it's good stuff and i like that moment too um it was it'd probably be my second favorite moment of this recording and then you're in this major key thing in the middle of the piece. And it, the first time I heard this, I, I, I was very charmed by it. I didn't know it was going to do that. I mean, most times if we go to a major in the middle of a piece, that I mean, that's common, but it wouldn't usually be the parallel major. And this is a music theory thing, but it just it sounds suddenly different when you go when you go to parallel major. I was yeah. not expecting that. Then I didn't know, like, is it going to end like that? Seems weird, but no, he does kind of return mm -hmm. to the minor thing. And and then when that happened, I, I was almost a little bit let down. And But then I realized as the piece ended that it was kind of inevitable. It needed to do that. And just like with so much of Bach, it does feel like once you've listened to the whole thing, like it was constructed that it's always existed like that. Like, how could it be any different? You know, it's just, he just, the way he constructed things with such precision. So this piece is a mainstay of the violin repertoire, and it's kind of it's kind of monumental. You know, a lot of the violin, a lot of famous violinists have tackled this work and have felt a profound connection to this work, and have played it many times. And the different interpretations of it, especially in those arpeggio sections, like we were talking about before, can yield a bunch of well, pretty wildly different sounding performances which gives you a nice fresh uh, feel every time you you click on a new video of this when you're when you're browsing YouTube or whatever um, it's it's really something cool that each each different musician can put their own stamp on it mm -hmm. also there's a cool thing that happens right at the beginning where when I first heard this or not when I first heard it, but when I when I re-listened to it for the podcast here for the first time, <laughs> um, I did it without watching, looking at the score or anything, and it starts on beat two of of a three beat pattern. 
and it just doesn't, there's nothing on beat one. Hmm. And it threw me for a while. And for a while, I didn't, I didn't understand the pattern. I knew it was supposed to be a chaconne, so I, I thought, well, it's going to be repeating all these things. But I couldn't, you know, the cadences weren't landing on the beat like I thought they would, you know? Yeah. It just kind of threw me for a second. And actually, what it did, it was, it was really amazing because the second time I listened to it, I had already fi- I'd figured that out. And without, I still hadn't looked at the score, but, but I was like, since I had heard it recently, I was like all in on like understanding the pattern and where the cadences were coming. And it was very satisfying. Um, listeners might remember I had this same experience with the Goldberg variations where I heard it the second time I was like really keyed into what was happening intellectually but that first time it was it was kind of a special off-kilter experience and I'll I'll never really experience it like that again unless I forget about this piece for 10 more years and then and then look at it again but I doubt that will happen because I love this so much now it'll probably uh, enter the rotation but yeah, there's something really special about that. Your brain is trying to figure these things out. It doesn't even have to be like consciously either. I mean, you don't have to know all this music theory stuff to, to try to figure out a piece. I mean, the brain always is working in the background, listening for patterns and figuring things out. And part of the reason I think why Bach is so powerful is because of the way his brain worked. It resonates somehow with the way all of our, all of our brains try to find patterns, right? It's like one of the most primal things that human brains do is find pat recognize patterns. You know, that's why we like puzzles and riddles and things like that. And in the spirit of a puzzle, he doesn't make it too obvious. Yeah. And like you said, it starts on beat two, which is weird. Not weird though, if you think about the cyclical nature of this variation thing. It just keeps going over and over again. And it has this arrival at the end on beat one mm-hmm. on D minor. And yeah. then it picks back up on beat two. So why should it have to start at beat one? It doesn't start at it a does, point it of doesn't. arrival. You're right. And in fact, it couldn't be anything else. Just like we were saying, these things yeah. always feel inevitable. Because it has to end right there on beat one, it means it starts on the beat two. And when you start listening to it that way, like I said, the second time I, I caught on to that. When you start listening to it that way, you realize, oh, like that's the pattern. Like it, it all it all kind of locks into place it's really really something else yeah it's such kind of a matter of perspective you know it's like how we think that the day starts at 12 o'clock midnight but really like around the world a lot of people probably just count the day as sunrise and then you've got like the beginning of the day i mean sure or the or jewish the arbitrary sunset put yeah, or the arbitrary place to put New Year's, you know, or whatever. Yeah, these things, these things which are cyclical, which we which we just assume are the way they are. It's just not how they are. And when he drops us in like this, it's almost, I I think it's way more profound because it it bestows upon this music a spirit of timelessness. It's like it it doesn't have to feel like it's just started. It could it almost kind of feels like it's always been going. Yeah. And as a matter of perspective, that, that first listen, because I wasn't feeling the beat one where I thought it was, it was a completely different piece of music. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just amazing how that works. And now, here is that moment 
of the Shikun from the Violin Partita Number no. 2. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this piece, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of Violin Partita Number no. 2 by Shunsky Sato of the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. And thank you again to all our new listeners and our listeners from the previous season who encouraged new people to listen. It's so great to see our listenership grow. So Christian, what moment are we going to be talking about on the second episode of season two? We'll be looking at the overture to the cantata Nun kommt der Heiden Highland, BWV 61, which we first saw on the first episode that I selected music for at the very beginning of last year. But we will revisit the cantata now to look at a different part. Nice. Until next time. Enjoy those moments. Mm-hmm.